Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Welcome, everybody, to episode 79. 79 seems like it should be a sexier number than <laughs> it is. Like, it should have a special, some special quality to it, right? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it's a good sounding number. <laughs> I think it's just because it's so, it's, it sounds so similar to 69. Is that what it is? I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, 89. Now there's a mm-hmm. good number. Ooh. Anyway. there's Yeah, there's, there's like a lot of roundness to it. <laughs> Dang. Okay, this is mm. a PG-13 podcast, so I guess we can say roundness when we're talking about numbers. <laughs> um, but this is episode 79 of The Department, and it is part four in our continuing series about the history of secondhand shopping as a social retail and style trend. And this is kind of where we're going to end our conversation about secondhand, at least for now. But we know that... I'm shocked. <laughs> I feel like, you know, just every time I meet with you, you've got more and more and more. <laughs> I know. Well, we did already talk before we were recording that there are a few other sort of like mm-hmm. micro trends and phenomena with and secondhand that we'll probably revisit in the future. Um, I also, you know, something I'd been thinking about... As I was working on all these episodes, I was like, you know, a lot of the icons and films that we have talked about in terms of how they've influenced secondhand shopping in the past, um, they were really, there were a lot of white people. And it really bugged me a lot. And I, I just couldn't find a more diverse range of people to show you all in terms of who was influencing secondhand fashion in the 80s and 90s. And I think a lot of that really speaks to the culture that we have lived in for so long. It's like you have to make some, make some deep fakes. Yeah. <laughs> just 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 to put some of that that the, that collateral out there. Right. And so I did think like I would love to hear from all of you. Maybe we can put a little thing out on the like an all points bulletin on our Instagram account. Just wanting to like hear from you other icons of secondhand and vintage because I think it would be great for us to do a little a little episode about those maybe when I come back from Japan. So just something for us. I don't know. I would love to hear from all of you um, because, you know, I was just like really heads down in the research and following where the mainstream media of that time took me. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I mean, it's it was very white focused, obviously. Right. So I don't know. I just think there's a lot of opportunity there. Amanda, did you see on on Instagram when I I released a poll about um, the pretty in pink dress and how people kind of felt about it, if they were indifferent, if they loved it, or if they um, did not like it so much? I did. And honestly, I'm really disappointed in all of you because I wanted all of you to agree that it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Were you surprised? Were you surprised by the outcome? Yeah. I was surprised. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people that definitely thought it was pretty terrible. So, it was really terrible. But it was it was very defied, divided. Yeah, you know? I believe someone said that they thought it looked like Mother of the Bride. And I was like, yeah, nailed it. That is exactly mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. that silhouette was. And oh, yes. I don't care for it. So today we're going to dig into a time that feels so far away. 
yet was somehow just a few years ago, and that's the 2010s, or as some people call them, maybe maybe just Kim, the Audis. Just me. Right? I feel like I read it somewhere, and so I just use it. I'm like, that? I like it. I've been throwing it out there. I like it, too. I like that. That works. Because the 2010s does not roll off the tongue. It's a lot of syllables. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. It looks weird. The Audis... Also, most people don't know what it means. So, so yeah, like, like let's yeah. make the Audis a thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Audis, mm-hmm. Audis, Audis. Oh my god, I think I just did that to the theme of like when you're playing uh, <laughs> Super Mario Brothers, and it's like, I did. Audis, Audis, Audis. Okay. Anyway, um, I gotta say that working on this series, this part of the series, was really weird because the first half of the decade felt so far away to me. You know, and as I was reading and researching, it started to feel like there was this clear dividing line in the decade, which I'm calling BT and AT before Donald Trump and after Donald Trump. I actually think that's actually a really good point. Um, And we'd actually been talking about that way earlier in the series when we were kind of talking about like there was just like a real shakeup in like 2016 mm-hmm. and that's exactly what it is but it came from every single cultural and like trend everything just changed definitely. right at that precipice yeah definitely and you know the the BT before Donald Trump era was full of long brunches maximalist rock and roll 70s style avocado toast hooking up with normcore dudes and significantly less anxiety about current events like i remember that and i'm that person who's like way into current events. I listen to NPR all the time, and yet I did not feel as if it was controlling my day-to-day life the way it did starting in 2016. As I was going through the 2010s and all these fashion trends that you and I, Kim, certainly have had to buy into, develop into as part of our jobs, I was wondering what fashion trends of the 2010s really stick with you the most. I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, because it was really the time of like minimalism and mm-hmm. costs and everything was, you know, Scandinavian. Oh my God, remember need supply? Oh, need supply. Exactly. Everything was kind of about uh, millennial disruptors. Yes. And how, how millennial disruptors really kind of changed the landscape mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of everything we did, every, how we shopped what we wore, um, you know, even as we were looking at how J. Crew basically just dropped off in the early oddies and Everlane took over the entire market share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that just shows the complete shift of that trend. Uh, athleisure. Oh my God. I read so many articles. I've read so many articles <laughs> in the past week about like the style trends of 2010s. And the first one on every magazine or blogs list is athleisure. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was game changing for sure. I don't know if it's weird to feel nostalgic for a time that was really not that long ago, but I definitely was filled with a lot of nostalgia as I was working on this. And I think that's a testament to just how difficult this decade, which, by the way, we're only three years into how difficult this decade has been so far. Like, I am excited to talk to you about this today because I had a lot of good memories, you know? Yeah, I think you're going to, yeah, I think you're going to kind of... um evoke some of those in all of us i think so i think so and it's not as horrific as that aughts mainstream fashion (laughs) that we talked about which is also haunting me (laughs) so before we get into all that kim why don't you lay your regular spiel on us 
Sure, of course. So follow, rate, and review. You know, make sure to do that on your preferred streaming service. Um, you can find us online on our website, thedepartment.world. It has all of our show notes, all the image references, and links to our Instagram, which I highly recommend that you um, join and you know participate in. Um, yeah. We are also taking tips. Dollar tips. Actually, we are taking trend tips too. But if you got a dollar tip or a couple dollars, a few bucks to donate, you can actually find a link in our Instagram page and donate a couple dollars. You know, we do this ad free. Um, we mm-hmm. do this for everyone. We do this for ourselves, but we do it for everyone else. <laughs> so any help is appreciated. For sure. For sure. Before we go back to the Audis and get filled with lots of nostalgia, I thought. It'd be fun to just talk for a couple minutes or maybe sad that something else that I think evokes a lot of nostalgia in many of us, which is the end of Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know if you read this week, Kim, but they it's done. Yes. Gonzo, it's, donezo. It's it's believably unbelievable. I, I mean, know. when was the last time you've been in a Bed Bath and Beyond? Okay, well, once in 2021, maybe it was 2020. No, it had to have been 2021. Our coffee grinder broke. And Kim, I literally went everywhere I could go looking for a replacement. And I ended up at Bed Bath & Beyond. Like that was the only place that had one. And it was the first time I'd been in one since you and I went to one way back in Hollywood. So you could swap out your soda stream bottles. And it was weird in there. Um, so much just like randomness jammed in every corner. I know it was always like that, but it felt extra weird. Like, why were they selling Nick's makeup there? Yeah. You know? Yeah, they really had diversified, but the quality, the last time I was in there, everything was just garbage quality. I was like, is this the dollar store? Yeah. I mean, you can see, looking back, I'm like, oh, it, the... The path was obvious where they were over inventoried. Then they tried to get into a lot more private label stuff, which they marked up really high and then sold via coupons, which does somehow work for Kohl's, but was not working for Bed Bath & Beyond. And everything I'd heard this morning on NPR is just like this year, the store has been getting emptier and emptier. And so you would go into whole alcoves of the store and they would just be empty. Just a ba- it was a bad experience. I never liked going in there. Oh, um, me neither. It's I too mean, much. I, used to, I mean, I used to find it interesting, you know, because you, you could you could just actually like experience a lot of things that maybe you've kind of seen online. But you know, it was just ugh, everything just felt like a cheap um, iteration of mm-hmm. something that you wanted, but you didn't want that. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I want this. I want this coffee grinder, but I don't want this coffee grinder. Right, right. I think they ended up shifting into a lot of their own stuff or exclusives that they could price higher and make higher margin on. And it just made it not a good source of the things you think of going to Bed Bath & Beyond for, you know? Um, yeah, so it's the end. They, I mean, there's a chance that someone could buy the chain and, you know, re rejuvenate it. But I think that is a pretty wild idea at this point. I don't think that's going to work. I will say there was one really interesting thing that I learned about Bad Bath and Beyond this week. And that is that they let the individual store managers pick the inventory for the stores. Yes, I was reading which that. Which is and I was like, oh. kind of made my head hurt thinking <laughs> about like, it as no. a buyer. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, like, do you think it was all the all the product in the stores or just Shh. 
I don't know. If you're listening to this and you are someone you know worked in buying at Bed Bath & Beyond or even was a store manager, will you get to us about this? Because I want to know. As a buyer, this just like, I can't. Like, I do not want the store managers picking out the product. I don't know how I would manage inventory or assortment plan or plan buys, right? So, yeah. Anyway, uh, RIP Bed Bath & Beyond and the legendary coupons. Right. I know. I did like those coupons, but it was like, okay, I'm going to spend 20% off on garbage. Like, I just, (laughs) it's just no longer compelling. It didn't. If you were the kind of person who takes the next level of, like, research into these kinds of things, like, they weren't a good deal. I remember specifically wanting to get a soda stream and knowing that they had them at Bed Bath & Beyond, signing up to get the coupon, looking at the price at Bed Bath & Beyond, calculating what the discount would be and saying, huh, that's the same price as Target. Like they were just marking stuff up to accommodate the coupons and it made me not trust them, you know? So yeah, that's disastrous. And I think that that's probably a big part of it too. Like give your customers some credit. Right. You're just like ruining brand loyalty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, let's get started by talking about the economic situation that many of us were dealing with in the 2010s, because I think that's a good way to start talking about where we were with secondhand, because we have, now that we've gone through decades of this, literally, we've seen how what's happening in the larger economic climate affects people's relationship with secondhand shopping. So, 2010 began pretty badly. The economy was still struggling with the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis and then the following recession. Hiring was at a standstill and consumer sentiment was at an all-time low. It was like not a fun time. Throughout the decade, we saw the rise of the gig economy. Uber, Lyft, food delivery, kind of like permanent freelancing. I mean, I had friends who were working on contract, which means not as a real employee, for four, five, six, seven years at all kinds of huge companies like Nike and MTV. You know, they were just freelancing forever. So they got no benefits. And that's the thing about all these jobs that were either freelance or like gig work. Sure, maybe they gave you some flexibility, although they didn't always. And they were inconsistent, they didn't include benefits, and they didn't offer a lot of security. So people were just like working to exist in so many ways. It was like the hustle economy, too. Oh, God, this is hustle culture. Uh Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rent increases continued to outpace wage growth. So one more reason that people are like, hustle, hustle, hustle. Millennials were realizing pretty fast that their jobs, and jobs in plural per person, so many were working so many jobs, uh, weren't covering rent and student loans and food and anything else they needed. Wealth inequality continued to widen. And this is when we started to hear a lot of talk about the one percenters. And oh yeah, Occupy Wall Street happened, which I like, I'm sorry, this probably makes me just like a terrible person, but I had forgotten about it. We also saw a lot of millennials killed blank think pieces, which are, I have to say, Kim, are still kind of my favorite thing to read. They are. I think they're really fun. I know. I think they're really fun, too. Just some of the things millennials killed, restaurants, diamonds, (laughs) cable television, chain restaurants, beer. I mean, we have a whole podcast on this. We do. We do. But the list keeps coming. Paper napkins. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Department stores. Ironing. Marriage, also divorce, 
hotels, mayonnaise, I didn't know about that one, and canned tuna. What these millennials killed blank pieces were really showing, even if they weren't telling it, is that millennials were in both a unique financial situation, which was that it was far worse than the financial situation of their parents at that age, and millennials had had different tastes for things. I mean, it was the it was the disruption decade, and the dis and this is it's the disruption um, group of people. You yeah, know? like that. These everyone wanted to, to kind of disrupt what what was pre existing, like mayonnaise and <laughs> paper napkins. <laughs> and we also just have this generation of people who have graduated out into this economy that sucks. They're wildly underemployed, even though that they might be working 40 or 60 or 80 hours a week. They're still underemployed. Um, this is like a very educated generation that has a lot more thoughtfulness and awareness about what they're doing. Now, of course, I would call millennials the fast fashion generation as well. So it's not like millennials were the saints or anything like that. But they came into the world, into an adult world that was just like so weird and so different than the world of our parents, for sure. Um, in general, many people were continuing to struggle financially, not just millennials, but secondhand shopping as a mainstream way of life wasn't a big trend anymore, at least in the beginning of the decade. People had other affordable options out there. They had off-price retailers, which we talked about in the last episode. You know, your your Nordstrom racks, your Marshalls, your TJ Maxx kind of places. Uh, they had fast fashion brands, which like thrift stores couldn't even really compete with some of those prices. I specifically remember Forever 21 sold tank tops for $1.80. And I Oof. don't think a thrift store could meet that pricing. Um, and there were dollar stores. Dollar stores were like exploding at this time. This was also the golden era of calling Target Target, <laughs> right? And Target was an affordable mm -hmm. destination for design-driven home goods and clothing. Oh, and they were doing collaborations everywhere. Oh, and gosh. everyone was doing the high-low collaborations. So you could get like Carl Lagerfeld for at H&M or something yeah, for yeah, you know, totally. a fraction of the price. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was doing it. Mm -hmm. And people, like I said, they were getting really into dollar stores. And much like thrifting in the 70s and the 80s, it wasn't just low-income people shopping at dollar stores, kind of for like the first time ever. I read this 2011 New York Times article called The Dollar Store Economy. And I actually read this a couple years ago, but brought it back for this one. And I'm going to link to this in the show notes. I highly recommend you read it because it is fascinating how a place like say the dollar tree is you know designed merchandised you know the product assortment all of it it's it's so intentional to get people to impulse shop Ooh, do tell so fascinating like even just that like they make the aisles a little bit narrower and they offer carts, even though these aren't these big stores. And the idea is to just get you to keep on moving and dumping stuff in your cart without thinking. Um, it's really fascinating. Go check it out. I mean, just how the height of the displays, everything. They think about it all. Um, it's definitely capitalism at its strategic worst, if you will. I really loved this section from this article. Uh, the writer writes, we are awakening to a dollar store economy. For years, the dollar store has not only made a market out of the, the 
sorry, the detritus, I love that word, by the way, of a hyperproductive global manufacturing system, but it has also made it appealing by making it amazingly cheap. Before the market meltdown of 2008 and the stagnant jobless recovery that followed, the conventional wisdom about dollar stores, whether one of the three big corporate chains, Dollar General, Family Dollar, and Dollar Tree, or any of the smaller chains like 99 cent only stores, which they totally have in LA, or the world of independent dollar stores, was that they appeal to only poor people. And while it's true that low-wage earners still make up the core of dollar store customers, what has turned this sector into a nearly recession-proof corner of the economy is a new customer base. What's driving the growth, says James Russo, a vice president with the Nielsen Company, a consumer survey firm, is affluent households. Financial anxiety, or the new consumerism, if you like, has been a boon to dollar stores. Same-store sales, a key measure of a retailer's health, spiked at the three large publicly traded chains in this year's first quarter. All were up by at least 5%, while Walmart had its eighth straight quarterly decline. Much of Dollar General's growth is generated by fill-in trips, increasingly made by wealthier people. Why linger in the canyons of Walmart or Target when you can pop into a dollar store? I do remember like lots of blogs. We're going to talk about blogs so much today. And I hadn't really like said or typed that word in a really long time. And it's like hilarious, the word blog. Um, But there were, I remember in this period, more and more of these blogs were popping up to say like, here are all these amazing crafts you can make from stuff from the dollar store. Or like, here's how I threw a party only with stuff from the dollar store. And, you know, it was the same kind of thing as like, look at me, my outfit is head to toe from Target, you know, that kind of stuff. Like there was, there was a lot of blogging about fashion, which we're going to talk about at length today. But there's also a lot of blogging about like, look at how you can make amazing things out of inexpensive stuff. Like this was a trend of this time. I feel like a lot of people kind of realize that the product at like the dollar store um, or any of the dollar stores was the same quality and probably made in many of the same factories as Mm -hmm. the product that you can get in like Target or Walmart or even like further up, up the chain. So it was like, well, you know, we, it, it doesn't really matter where I shop. I can just get the exact same thing at one of these places. Totally. Totally. I think people were starting to be wise to that. I mean, you and I know that even in the realm of clothing, most of the clothing is coming from the same factories, you it know. Is. Even even the same, like we talked about it, the uh, the apparel, the downtown. What is it? The, the downtown center, San Pedro Apparel San Mart. San Pedro, yeah, yeah. Where yeah. that was being sold in high end retailers that mm-hmm. were just marking the same stuff up or just uh, white labeling the product. But yeah. it's the same thing that you could find at just basically the the equivalent of a dollar retailer down the street. Absolutely. Yeah, it is called kind of the same. I mean, and I'm going to tell you this might blow some minds here, but the stuff at Target is probably being made in the same place as the stuff at Walmart, which is the same stuff as the stuff that's at the Dollar Tree, which in many aspects is probably the same stuff at Bed Bath & Beyond. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So, so overall, just in the 2010s, customers had so many other affordable options for shopping. And the rise of e-commerce made shopping for inexpensive things even easier. By the middle of the decade, Amazon offered the lowest prices on just about anything. And every fast fashion retailer was building a bigger and better website. 
Another thing that was just sort of killing the appeal of secondhand shopping is something that I hesitate to talk about because it horrifies me. Uh, It's nightmare fuel for many of us. The golden era of bed bug fear pieces. Oh, my God. That's right. Because I used to live in New York around that time and everyone was terrified of bed bugs because it was a giant nightmare, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And it was like there was I remember there was a piece on This American Life about a woman's struggles with bed bugs <laughs> that like horrified oh. me. And they were popping up in magazines all over the place. Lots of things that I would read. It would be like my nightmare year with bed bugs. I remember a friend of mine, he had bed bugs in his building. I will not reveal his name here because it was horrific for him. And like I wanted to help him, but I was also like, should I even let him in my car? Like, is this because we were all afraid, right? We were all like, oh, my God, it could be us next. Um, And it didn't help that there was a lot of conversation, um, a lot of articles, blog posts about how you could get bedbugs secondhand shopping, you know. And I literally found an article in The New York Times that was specifically about the dangers of catching bedbugs from thrifting or shopping secondhand. And I think in many ways, they they kind of... I don't dismiss that notion, but they didn't do a great I, they didn't do a great job of it. I'll link to the article in the show notes, and you can tell me what you think. But from this article, I have a few quotes here. In a summer when bed bugs have crawled deep into New York City's psyche, no one is more anxious than those shoppers who live to scout secondhand clothing shops and used furniture stores. They are connoisseurs of what is hot, hip, a bargain. They know where the flea markets are and when the vintage shops are open. And they are scared that bed bugs from the home of a former owner still call that $20 designer jacket or that fabulous $65 chair their castle. Like, geez, guys, okay, we won't shop secondhand. (laughs) The article goes on. I liked this little nugget. In the spring, the first question from a student at a Fashion Institute of Technology course called Is Vintage for You was, have you ever experienced any issues with bedbugs? Wow. I mean that actually really makes a lot of sense how those two yeah those those two elements that were like deep seated in the consumer conscious would really affect the sales. I mean that makes so much sense. So you're worrying about bed bugs. I mean I remember people yeah. would say to me like, "What? You got that where? Aren't you worried about bed bugs?" And I would be like, "Not not really." You know? Yeah. <laughs> but But, like, there was a lot of fear about it. It came up in conversations a lot. You know, despite all of these fears of bedbugs, all of these cheaper places to shop, the idea of mixing high-low fashion with vintage was picking up momentum. In fact, successfully pulling off this mix was considered the peak of fashion and personal style. And ultimately, this mix, this idea of high-low and vintage blended together it kind of democratized fashion. I mean, with the caveat that it only sort of did. It didn't still apply to everyone because, you know, there are a lot of other, I don't know, negative factors in this world that uh, prevent people from being allowed to participate in these things, right? Like anti-fat bias, racism, sexism, transphobia, all these other things that prevented everybody from being able to participate in this. But it did make it feel as if just about anyone could become a style icon. 
A lot of this desire to mix things up was actually led by the rise of street-style photography, which I just, like, I don't know. I can't even explain it, Kim. It's just been around for so long. I was like, oh, oh, this is when that happened, you know? <laughs> yes. Right? Um, I read, I've read so many articles over the past week about just, like, what were the fashion trends in, in the 2010s and the oddies. Um, and I read this one retrospective from Women's Wear Daily where they said, Street style photography has long been a part of Fashion Week, but the phenomenon gained prestige and ubiquity in the 2010s thanks to the proliferation of social media. These street style images circulated on fashion blogs, websites, and Instagram more so than actual runway looks, spawning a budding class of influencers that today are industry powerhouses. The dawn of the street style star can be credited in large part to the late New York Times photographer Bill Cunningham. For decades, Cunningham was a fixture on the streets of New York, but he became a celebrity in his own right with a documentary about his work, which was released in 2011. The decade also saw the rise of other street-style photographers, including Scott Schumann and Tommy Tan, who gave a platform to the self-styled fashion bloggers and put on display their wildly acclaimed authentic style. We also had the sartorialist um, style bites was one that I really loved and was obsessed with it. It was a woman who lived, I want to say, in Sweden because she wore a lot of H&M. And she actually had such a rabid international fan base that when she disappeared a few years into it, people were legitimately concerned. And she kind of popped up a couple years later and said, yeah, I just didn't want to do it anymore. People were worried that she'd been, like, kidnapped, (laughs) murdered, had gotten ill. She just disappeared. She never said, I'm going to stop posting. She just stopped posting on Style Bites. But people were concerned. (laughs) Yes. Like we do. do. Yeah. Um, There was advanced style, which I always loved. Yeah, that's... Uh, You know, older people. That was... Yeah. That was... um, That's a really good one. uh, A friend of a friend who produces that. Oh, wow. Oh, one of my favorites, honestly. So are there any favorite street style blogs of that era that you remember or miss or that you checked regularly? I mean, I love the Tommy Tan ones. That's the that's what I was really following mm-hmm. um, was, you know, because that that really gave you that that access that you couldn't really see to the actual style. trends, yeah. You know, because runway style is one thing. But it's different. But like, ac- yeah, street style is like the actual execution and achievement of of something you can actually wear around and how the people kind of actually dress. And so um, especially when you were looking at like, international street style. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. And street fashion. That was that was the best. And you, of course, we had to develop style boards and trend Always. boards, all of those things constantly. So you had to find resources that felt innovative, but also um, cutting edge. Definitely, definitely. I remember specifically like in their early oddies when I was working as a buyer at Urban Outfitters. That was the period where we were really looking to Scandinavian style bloggers. Yes, yes, right? exactly. That was that was the that was the hot area. Yeah, yeah. That was like. People would go on trips there for scouting. I thought I had like, you know how you could like, I don't even remember what this was called. It was like an RSS feed where you would put in all the blogs that you followed and then you could see the updates every day. I mean, my list was like a million long. And the first thing I would do when I got into the office every morning was open that and go one by one. And so many of them were Scandinavian. We also can't forget the Tumblr of it all. 
Uh, this is a big part of this era, too. It allowed anyone to put together their own blog of style, art, and aesthetic. And trends were actually created within Tumblr. And that was another one that I would say around maybe closer to 2013, 2012, I was starting to look at Tumblr regularly also uh, more to predict trends, you know, and like what's coming for people like, oh, now they want to do this like pastel goth thing. Now it's about this soft girl aesthetic, you know, on and on and on. Uh, Tumblr in itself is really fascinating to me. And I actually, as I was working on this, I thought, oh, it might be fun to do an episode sometime in the next couple of months be a nostalgic trend episode specifically about all of the trends that Tumblr created in the 2010s. Yeah, I would love be that. Be fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. We also see the rise of the original style blogger influencers. We get Man Repeller, Blonde Salad, Song of Style, Something Navy, Style Bubble, which was like my favorite, Susie Bubble. Um, I suppose we probably got Danielle Bernstein coming up at this point. You know, we were what? I'm sure I missed some other memorable people here, but I'm just going to be really honest and say, like, I haven't really ever been into influencers. <laughs> like, it's just, I don't really follow them. I'll look at them for work sometimes, but a lot of the places I've worked have been a lot more like cutting edge in terms of where we were with trends. And so a lot of these more like mainstream influencers we weren't really interested in. But I do remember specifically, and I know we've brought this up on here before, Kim, that when we were at Nasty Gal, there was one influencer who we followed pretty closely. Oh, Kim Kardashian. Yes. Yes. And I remember when I got there, I was like, oh, no, oh. now I have to follow Kim Kardashian on Instagram. And I was like, oh, this is just yeah, awful. Yeah, man, the Kardashians, like, that was the fit for Nasty Gal, you know? I mean, we had a lot of different customers, but I would say the heart of our customer really loved Kim Kardashian. I mean, it was like the sex in the city of yeah, thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Like, you had to just just watch what they were wearing, and you would immediately have to just buy into whatever it you was. You would. If it was something kind of new or different. It's like, oh, okay, so these, like, over-the-knee, lace-up, like, impossible-to-wear stilettos are, are in. I know I have to wear these and or buy these. And, of course, they would sell right out. Yeah, yeah. And, like, weird, like, ribbed bandage dresses and lots of, mm-hmm. like, beige. Lots of beige. You know, I remember beige was always a really hard sell. Any sort yeah. of, like, skin tone color was just real until the Kardashians came along. It's true. And then we were selling that more than black yeah. at Nasty Gal in certain styles. It was really wild is very chic or like heather gray is another one that is like really hard to sell but in that kardashian era of like 2015 that was another one like oh a crop top and a mini in in you know heather athletic gray rib sold like it's so bizarre um and that was an influence like you know i think people forget that kim kardashian was an influencer you know um, this was also the era of the celebrity stylist, like as in oh the stylist gosh, yes. who styled celebrities, but was also a celebrity themselves, right? There were so many of them, like Rachel Zoe, for example. And some of the best known stylists would mix vintage with big labels and also small cult brands to dress their clients. Celebrities like Kim Kardashian began wearing vintage couture on the red carpet. This was like a new thing to wear 
a secondhand dress on the red carpet? Like what? You know, every year when we talk about the Oscars and award season, and by the way, like I'm very disconnected from all this stuff at this point, but you know, there was a time where it'd be like, oh my God, got to go get the magazine right away and see what everyone wore to the Oscars. Cause that's going to be somehow directional for this year or like, look at the blog posts. Right. And we definitely at Nasty Gal would go through some of these and say like, okay, how can we make that? What, how can we interpret that? Like we, w- we really paid attention to that. But the thing is like, you would be waiting to see who dressed them. And it would be this like, one one after another, like brand new, specially designed for this event designer dresses, right? And suddenly we have big mainstream stars wearing vintage on the red carpet. So seeing these mainstream megastars, like I'm telling you, Gwyneth Paltrow, Miley Cyrus. Um, that looks like an so many other right there. Oh, the Olsons uh-huh. always showing up. Um, she's got some. I'm she's blanking. got some photos to you know to to yes. review. That's what we're looking at. That's what I'm looking at. Natalie Portman. I mean, like the biggest stars of this era showing up in vintage gowns. This really elevated vintage to the status of luxury, you know. And so high end boutiques began mixing vintage in with new stuff. And hip retailers like Nasty Gal got in on it by doing regular drops of high-priced vintage. Like we, you know, I never ceased to be amazed how the vint- fast the vintage would sell on the Nasty Gal website because, you know, most of our clothes were under $100. Most of our dresses were like $58. We'd do a drop of vintage where it would be like $800 jackets and vintage Chanel purses and $300 rock tees, and it would all sell out like in one day. That's right. I almost forgot about that. I mean, I know that, that there was a lot of product that was kind of, it was like made, uh, remade from um, like upcycled. After party. After party. Yeah. That was- but right, the vintage drops. The first time I worked there and we did that and I was looking at the page, I was like, wait, this can't be the same customer, you know? knowing how resistant our customer was to pricing overall. And then to see it all sold by the end of that day, um, it was pretty interesting. And I suspect it was a different customer. That's what I think. Um, But secondhand luxury items also began to pick up momentum as an aspirational aesthetic choice. Like, why go buy a new Chanel bag when you could say that yours was vintage? You know, and it wouldn't necessarily even be cheaper. It was just like an aesthetic choice. And I don't know, I'm sure you're familiar with that high-end vintage show, A Current Affair, which happens in LA. Yes. And I think in San Francisco also. Absolutely. It was founded in 2010. Like, this is the decade for that. I did not know that. And we're talking, like, high-end prices, you know? It wasn't the flea market. So we just see people being more willing to pay a lot for vintage, but we're also speaking of a wealthier customer buying this stuff. Whereas like more middle income, lower income people, they're going to be buying stuff at the dollar store or at Target or from fast fashion retailers or, you know, maybe thrifting. But more than any other era, fashion, like the mainstream fashion industry, retailers and brands, they were leaning heavily into vintage, both literally by having sections in their store or on their website for vintage items, but also in more of a like knockoff sort of way. 
There were so many style trends in the 2010s that relied heavily, I mean, well, really completely, on vintage aesthetic and style. We got Normcore, for example, which was really a vintage 90s look, a la, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, right? We've got festival fashion, which launched just like big time boho, like brands that only sold the boho festival look. 365 days a year, you know, people would describe their aesthetic as boho, right? Yes. Then we get 1990s grunge and unisex dressing making a return. I mean, even at Nasty Gal, we did a collab with Courtney Love, you know? And by the way, that collab primarily was things we borrowed from her closet and turned into new items. In the second half of the 2010s, Uh, starting when we were in the Nasty Gal era of our careers, 70s became a trend again. So we've got all kinds of decades swimming around here. And you might not be surprised to hear that in that decade, specifically later in the after Donald Trump era, nostalgia became a very big deal. According to Google, Nostalgia was the biggest fashion trend of 2018. Harper's Bazaar says, It raises questions in my mind about whether we are more unhappy with the present time than usual. I feel that one. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, that That quote came from Sarah Rose Cavanaugh, who's the director of the Laboratory for Cognitive and Effective Science at Assumption College. She said, We feel nostalgic for times in our past that we long to return to, at least temporarily. Could it be that, more than usual, we feel ourselves pulled backward to a time of our lives when things felt simpler, more connected, and less divided? This was in 2018, my friends. You don't even know how nostalgic we're going <laughs> to yes. get in a few years. It's going to be right? like the biggest driving force of like a I know. decade. <laughs> I know. Which actually is, is interesting because, you know, we always see that pendulum swimming, swinging, you know, where right. where nostalgia will become, will be this huge, huge, huge trend. And it'll it just exist in a way that just feels like it's timeless. But it's going to swing back the other way to the opposite direction at some point. We know that we're going to start seeing it. And it's going to be all about futurism. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. I mean, even when I look at the first part of the 2010s, which we're going to talk about in a few, like there wasn't really a sense of nostalgia at that point. Like it was all about living in that moment and this like new way forward and millennials killing all the things while they did it. Well, yeah, and also nobody wanted to look back on the odds. Nobody wanted to look back (laughs) on what existed. Like it was kind of like, ooh, everyone was sick of it and they just wanted something completely different. Definitely, definitely. We saw all the biggest brands of the odds just die immediately when we came into the 2010s. Like it was like, nobody wants Ed Hardy. (laughs) uh, Nobody wants Juicy. Um, you know, I could go on and on. Like Uggs. Von Dutch. Yeah, uh-huh. Uggs, all you name it, like gone and just like don't even speak their name. You know, like, how embarrassing, right? And it's not unlike, you know, like in the 80s when everybody was like, oh God, the 70s, we can never speak of it again. And then in the 90s, everybody's like, ooh, gross, get the 80s out of here. Um, and I think like eventually this nostalgia is gonna end. It's like hard to see that time right now, but eventually we will. Eventually we will. So the four, the top four fashion searches, according to Google, in 2018 were 
1980s fashion, grunge fashion, 1990s fashion, and I don't know who was searching for this, but 2000s fashion. (laughs) By the way, the number one searched brand, fashion brand that year, 2018, I mean, this kind of takes me back to fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Never hear about them anymore. I just I just don't think you run in those circles. I'm sure that they're they're doing fine. I have this I still laugh <laughs> when I think about this. This very visceral memory of it being 2020, like one month into the <laughs> yes. pandemic, and you and I were on the phone for like hours. <laughs> and all we were doing was looking at Fashion Nova's Instagram. Yes. But looking at and, what people tagged themselves in. Yeah, yeah. Because we were just like, this is not us, you know? Um, and it was very illuminating. Um, but even I think a lot of that is like very dated now, right? So stuff does change. Fashion Nova was definitely not nostalgic. You know, like it was like a forward view of fashion that didn't really pull from the past as much as other brands will were at that point. I'll just say that. Um Fashion of the 2010s kind of began to take on this overall look of maximal nostalgia. Yeah, it was kind of like a hipster thing to do, but millennials in general were used to being accused of being narcissistic hipsters at this point. They were also getting very accustomed to being accused of killing the Olive Garden. Um, So they didn't really push back on that. Um, If you're aching for some near-recent nostalgia, I highly recommend checking out this article from ID called McQueen Skulls and Mulberry Alexas, An Introduction to Early 2010 Style. And what it really made me see, as a person who lived through this, is the first couple years of the Audis had a very distinct look from the rest of the decade. And I think that's pretty normal. We see it being a lot darker in the beginning and it gets a lot more maximalist as the decade progresses or minimalist depending on what was your thing right but for the purpose of secondhand we're primarily going to be talking about the maximalist side of it because they are very linked so indie sleaze and ironic hipsterism were beginning to evolve and shift into something new and i think we were probably all Really glad to see that go. I know I was. We know that Indie Sleaze was gross um, at its core. And the I- irony of hipsterism in the aughts is that all of the irony wasn't actually that funny at all and was just like subconscious or not even subconscious racism and sexism, right? But the early 2010s were the era of Lita's, right? The iconic Jeffrey Campbell shoe. Love them. Ready for them to come back. I guess I'm nostalgic for those shoes. They were so comfortable. And they made me like six feet tall. Um, Scarves. Oh, my God, Kim. I had like buried scarves deep away into my brain because I had to buy so many of them at Urban Outfitters. But everything I looked at from this period scarf 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 scarves of all sorts yeah so many scarves skinny jeans this is like skinny jeans in its prime right all the stuff we talked about in the aughts episodes but kind of like transforming as people were like get me away from that like we see for example i'm sure you remember this how shirts were really long in the aughts (laughs) I think because the jeans were oh, low rise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a little right. We see the uh-huh. crop top. Now it's like fuck that crop tops, right? Um, 
So we start to see this stuff shift. What we really start to see is a trend toward this maximal nostalgia aesthetic. And it starts in a small way, but it becomes bigger and more important by the end of the decade, setting the stage really for those wild festival looks, which, by the way, we're totally going to talk about festival in a future episode because it's been on our minds, Uh, heavy-duty pattern mixing, the return of 70s maximalism, and conversely, the intentional blandness of normcore as a counterpoint. Also, minimalism, right? So kind of more than ever in the 2010s, we start to see so many more micro-trends in fashion, and we see a lot more sort of like different groups based on aesthetic that I think has picked up a lot of momentum in the TikTok era. Like we have way more of these small subsets, these aesthetics, but we start to see that happening in the 2010s. And I really, it's because of social media, you know, it's because of Tumblr and style blogs and just suddenly we have people taking everything that's out there in the world and blending it all together to create their own specific thing. So from that same ID article where it kind of tells us what's happening in the early 2010s, it hints that there's this other other aesthetic that's starting to emerge. The article says, on the other side of town, thrifting for vintage clothes became commonplace for a more jobless, ukulele-busking look. Williamsburg and Brick Lane offering two sides of the same coin. But unlike today, a time in which most of us are in search of cult designer items, the 2010s were marked by a more innocent quest for sartorial classics like 40s-style tea dresses, old furs, beaten-up leather jackets, and classic Americana denim boots and fringe suede, and just good old-fashioned clothes. The idea was to throw it together with the ease of Alexa Chung or Florence Welsh, pairing it with a floppy hat and laddered tights, maybe a pair of brogues. Oh my god, I can picture all of this. Voila! There was also a kitsch rockabilly moment, which we cannot forget about. I forgot about it until I read this and I was like, oh, right. Think of anything polka dot, emblazoned with cherries, beehives, and lots of eyeliner a la Amy Winehouse. Sleaze meets twee. What brings all of these girls together, though, is that they can tell you where they were when they first discovered the work of Meadham Kirchhoff, the now defunct iconic London label that served latter-day riot girls. Look it up. If you're going to want anything, anything from the decade, at least make it a veritable piece of fashion history. Thought this like this really painted a picture for me. I was thinking about like Lily Allen, also dressed yes. a little bit like that, that nostalgic rockabilly kind of thing. Uh, we're starting to see like freak folk. Remember that, like the Devendra Banhart oh, kind my of. God, group. you really are taking me back. Yeah. So <laughs> this is like a fringe thing, but as the decade progresses, we see that aesthetic as well, which is very like sixties, seventies, bohemian, becoming more mainstream too. But like in a very distressed way, really built built off of wearing secondhand clothing. Over time, as I mentioned, this evolved into what we commonly refer to as festival aesthetic. <laughs> there, there it is. And Right, right. And then the more maximalist style blogger look that we now call cluttercore. I don't know if you've heard that term. I, yeah, I have, but I don't actually know what it means. 
Well, don't worry, because I'm going to talk right, about it. Because Clutter Core is coming back. Um, I suspect this means that the Boho Festival look could be back, too. I don't know. I think it might be too soon for that one. Um, I was looking at some fest Coachella photos this week, and I did feel like people were dressing a little bit differently than they had in the past at Coachella. Um Another article that filled me with a ton of nostalgia and kind of excitement for the future is this hot off the presses, well, at least like a month ago hot off the presses, article from Refinery29. And I can't remember the last time I got excited reading a Refinery29 (laughs) article or Mm -hmm. even just read a Refinery29 article in the first place, but this one was called Clutter Core, Why the 2010s Blogger Aesthetic is Back in Style. It says... Tumblr kids in fishnet tights and scuffed Doc Martens established their scuzzy, soft grunge aesthetic. Meanwhile, fashion bloggers with lookbook.nu, remember that oh, one? Yeah. Oh, that, my that God. That was where you could find a lot of the Scandinavian accounts. You would, yep. Oh, yep. They would post fit pics in skinny jeans, camel coats, and heeled ankle boots. Elsewhere in the blogosphere, teenagers rummaged in their closets to try and recreate avant-garde runway looks or scoured thrift stores for originals 1960s shift dresses to pair with clashing knee highs. And that brings us to clutter core here. Um, it was in sharp contrast to the skinny jeans and the all-black chic of the early 2010s. This is like the anti-indie sleaze. Again, from Refinery29, these bloggers and their contemporaries cultivated an anti-minimalist clutter-core fashion aesthetic characterized by rainbow hues, mismatched textures, and a studied interest in vintage style. Celebrities like Elle Fanning, Florence Welch, and Alexa Chung were also known for dressing in this chaotic, twee-adjacent style at the time, while established fashion faces like Iris Apfel and Anna Della Russo were often credited as, credited as formative influences. At the same time, popular blogging platform a Blogger, R.I.P., counted more than 2 million blogs related to fashion on their platform alone. Among these were diary-like personal style blogs that mixed backyard self-timer outfit portraits with fashion commentary, life updates, vintage mood boards, scans of scrapbooks, and film stills. The outfits themselves were experimental, involving lots of layering and a mixing of different vintage eras. And I shared some photos with you here, Kim. We've got um, Tavi... Do you say her last, is her last name Gevinson or Jevinson? Uh, Sorry, everyone, if I got it wrong. Uh, I don't anyway, know. Anyway, the, the founder of Rookie Mag. I there are pictures. You. There are pictures of her here. She has to be like 13 or something. Incredible clutter core look here. Susie Bubble of Style Bubble, another icon. Um, these looks actually look very fresh to me right now. And they remind me of one of the TikTok aesthetics that you talked about a couple months ago, which I think was it like freak core yes, or something exactly. like that. That's, the, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. I was like, what was that one called? I think it's very similar. Yeah. I think it's basically the same. It's basically yeah. the same, but for a new generation, I guess. And it really is just about mixing color and texture and pattern and not really thinking too much about the price of the clothes you're selling or if the eras go together, just like throwing it all in a blender, which in a time of nostalgia is like really 
imperative and thinking about how as we get into the late oddies, everybody's like, I'm nostalgic for the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the aughts. Let's just throw it all in (laughs) here. That's what you get, right? So this combination of style bloggers and Tumblr aesthetic and the sheer volume of trends that involved vintage aesthetic in one way or another led to an increase in thrifting among the young and style forward. And it actually really made thrifting second nature for Gen Z. We weren't quite in the era of online secondhand shopping, and that wouldn't get as big as it is now until this decade. But Depop and Poshmark did launch early in the decade. Most vintage shoppers were actually hitting up like actual real life stores, flea markets. I remember it became like a cool thing to go to the Rose Bowl flea market, for example, and blog about it, right? Uh, They would go to thrift stores. Um, They would also buy stuff online on eBay and now Etsy because Etsy had expanded to offering vintage clothing as well. And what was interesting about this time period, and isn't going to surprise anyone based on what we've been talking about, you know, in previous decades that we've talked about, there would be a specific time period that was the most sought after, right? So in the 80s, it was the 50s. And in the 90s, it was the 70s. In this time period, people are like, whatever, whatever I find is fine. Any era, any decade. The most stylish people were actually taking things from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and anything before or after, and wearing it together. I mean, let's still you have a lot of really good decades to choose from. I think this is the first time yeah. we actually had, you know, a really a good, you know, a good, what, 40 or 50 years of really cool mm-hmm. style to choose from. I mean, you know, of course, like the, the runways were also influencing a lot of this, too, with like Gucci basically just doing a 180 on the minimalism and going really deep into this, like, really like luxe, you know, 70s look that mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. wanted. <laughs> Everybody mm-hmm. was doing that. I remember specifically all the stuff we were working on at Nasty Gal for like six months straight was that Lux yes. 70s look. And it came right from the runway. And it was like, I, I mean, I remember thinking like, this is so fresh. Because the kind of 70s that we were wearing in the 90s was not that 70s, right? It was more like polyester and like brightly colored and ironic t-shirts. This was like a totally different level of it very polished very like disco ready because disco i mean for such a long time had um had such like negative connotations around it which is just ridiculous because disco rules (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh love disco uh well here's the thing is like everybody's like getting really into all of these vintage aesthetics mixing them up together or being more purist and being like i'm only doing luxe 70s disco what have you Thrifting isn't for everyone. And so retailers really wanted to get in on all of these big trends from this decade, no matter how small or niche they were, because this is the fast fashion era. And the goal of fast fashion, the business model, is to sell people as much stuff as possible as often as possible. And that means you got to buy into everything, right? You have to, no matter how small the trend is or how weird it seems, you as a buyer in that time period, we're like, I got to get into all of it. So everywhere I worked, we'd be chasing into like six, seven different trends at any given time. And some of them were very short-lived. Some of them went on for a long time. And we saw like festival as a trend even, you know? And so we were, there was just so much of this out there. And if you, 
if you see a bunch of people wearing secondhand clothes, that's not really helping the fast fashion industry, right? You got to get people to buy new stuff. So it became very common for buyers and designers to have massive sample budgets for purchasing vintage garments to copy, right? It was just par for the course in my career. We would do this all the time. I would say the only place that I worked that we didn't do that was Wild Fang. And that was just like a different aesthetic. But like everywhere else I worked, we were buying very expensive vintage samples and copying them. Nasty Gal was an extreme example. I remember we had like a vault of vintage that I can't even imagine what it was valued at because they would travel around and drop major cash on like vintage couture to copy. Um. This definitely drove up the price of vintage on the market because retailers had a much higher shopping budget and less price resistance than your average shopper. So this is when we start to see prices really escalating in the vintage realm because you're at the Rose Bowl and you're selling that jacket for $500. No problem. Some buyer is going to swoop in and buy it. And I can say that because I went on trips like that where I went to the Rose Bowl or I went to vintage shops and I bought really expensive pieces for us to copy. The weird challenge of it all, this idea of like, we're going to copy vintage stuff, is that how do you turn an extremely well-made, high-quality vintage garment that probably has a ton of detail into a $58 dress in 2016? And I just want to say, Kim, when we were at Nasty Gal, I'm jealous that you got to work on shoes because in the apparel realm, that was the puzzle we were trying to solve every week. It's like and how to reduce the cost, how to like make um, uh, cut corners and cut zippers, change out the yeah, fabric, exactly. reduce, reduce seams, all of those little things. I remember when I was in design school, we had a project where it was like, okay, here's something really amazing. Now make it more affordable. And I was like, this Wow, I mean, sucks. that was like setting you up. Yeah, that's like <laughs> in- important career knowledge. Mm-hmm. So like at Nasty Gal, you know, we had an in-house design team and they were all super duper talented. But definitely our leadership was really pushing for two things for our in-house product. One, copying stuff from the runway. Okay, good luck doing that and hitting a price point, right? And two, copying vintage. So we would go into like the first sort of like sketch review where the wall would just be hung with vintage samples and pictures printed out of runway stuff. And it'd be like, which of these things are you guys interested in? Well, of course, we're interested in all of it because it's fucking amazing. So then the samples come and they're shitty. So disappointing. (laughs) So disappointing. Uh, And they're still two to three times what we can can afford. Like, it's just, and this was happening in every retailer out there at this point if they weren't doing that they were buying stuff from people who had copied that stuff and then copying that being like okay they already did the work we'll just make this exactly exactly um and so i will say that despite all those challenges the 2010s were the most success that retailers have ever had in turning vintage into new clothing We had seen it fail in the 1970s. It would occasionally work in the 80s, but only if it was like that 50s aesthetic and it still had to just like really hit the right note. It picked up momentum in the 90s for sure. And we saw especially like more 
youth-oriented retailers like Delia's or Urban Outfitters really successfully copying the 70s. But I will say what was easy about that is that this kind of stuff that they were copying was not going to be like really expensive to begin with, right? And so it was easier to copy it and have it hit the right note without like 5,000 sample reviews where people are like crying with frustration. It really became a very successful business model in the 2010s to copy vintage into fast fashion. The irony is not lost on me that the vintage of the past was used to create near-future garbage, as it's hard to imagine many of these clothes created in the 2010s will survive long enough to become true vintage. It's very sad. It is sad. Sorry I ended it all on a sad note, everyone. <laughs> well, and, then, and of course, you know, the trend continues. You know, it doesn't oh, just yeah. stop here at the, at the Audis. But we don't really need to talk about it because we're living it. <laughs> we're living it right mm-hmm. now. And so, like, where are we right now? Well, one, it is easier than ever to shop secondhand, yeah. right, thanks to online shopping. We've got Depop. We got Poshmark. We got Vinted and Mercari. And we also still have eBay and Etsy. And then we have the Real Real, And we have vintage sellers selling on their own websites or on Instagram directly. We have people auctioning, like having live sales on Instagram. I mean, if you had told me like five years ago that was going to become a thing, first off, it's basically like a modernized version of QVC. And I love it. You know, I think it's so cool. I love watching people's live sales. I can't explain it. I understand now why people fall prey to QVC because they feel less lonely or something. And in the early days of the pandemic, I would watch like every live sale on Instagram, even if I didn't buy anything, just because it was like you felt like you were listening to other people talk about things. And so we have seen shopping secondhand become more accessible. Uh, We have seen more people who never did it in the past opting for it. And of course, we've seen that people love to fight about it on the (laughs) Internet. I, I know that yeah. you've been doing uh, some some series based on something sort of similar over at Close Horse. Mm-hmm. Has, has oh, there yeah. been a lot of infighting happening? You know, overall, I think it was it's been pretty good so far, and I hesitate to say that because I was telling Dustin last week I was like, this series I think has a very long tail in terms of the people who are going to be listening to it and participating in it. It's already been. It's already reached a lot of people, um, but I th- I see more and more people coming into the fold after listening to it, which is really exciting. So that means there could be future drama for sure. But uh, I will say there was someone who accused me of uh, participating and or encouraging genocide, which I think was a little bit heavy handed use of that term. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And uh There was a wild situation last week where I guess apparently that the conversations about pricing and accessibility to vintage clothing specifically, not secondhand, but vintage, has been quite a heated topic on Mm -hmm. the vintage to the vintage community on Instagram. So there's been a lot of heated conversation um people who are like there's price gouging i mean i have a lot of opinions there like one of the examples i saw was a dress like a suit from the 1940s that someone was offering like asking 600 dollars for and while that's out of my price range we're also talking about clothes that are close to 100 years old 
that probably should be in a museum at this point. So I can see both sides of it. I can see that that's frustrating if that's your style. Um, So there's been a lot of conversations about the ethics around that price gouging. I mean, listen, I would love to pull all these people aside individually and teach them about the art of pricing and perceived value, which you and I know a ton about. The long story short is the price is more than just how much you paid for to make it right or like or to source it, I guess, in the vintage world. It's like what people are willing to pay for it. You know, that's what the real price is. And what sort of value comes along with it, not just value and like dressing yourselves, but, you know, even just like the limited quantity or the the exclusivity of being so old or, you know, like the where they even found it. I mean, who knows how much they paid for it originally? Yeah, yeah. I mean, vintage, when we talk about like secondhand clothing in general, like the price is so much more complicated than what the seller paid for it and what it costs them to like clean it, ship it to you, all that stuff. Like it's way more complicated. I mean, like we didn't talk about this in in this episode because I just, I would sound like I was speaking another language um, because, you know, I can't even say the word dunk properly, (laughs) but like sneakerheads are a great example, Mm -hmm. like where the value of the shoe is not what the person paid for it. It's what the person buying it from them thinks it's worth based on the rareness, the collectability, that kind of thing. And I think all secondhand stuff, it operates that way as well. But vintage, obviously, it's even more complicated because the supply is even more limited by time, right? And also by size even. So anyway, there's been a lot of debate about that. And someone who is a pretty well-known I would say like a leader in that vintage aficionado of Instagram space shared a post I did and things went off the rails really fast because someone else in that community who is very anti-reseller, who I don't know, I don't follow, I'd never been aware of them before until they decided to make me very aware of them. They thought that I made that post specifically to respond to them. And which I didn't. I didn't even know that this was a hot topic on the vintage of Instagram world. I'm glad to know about it now. Um, that person went off the rails and said that I was a Nazi, like actually dropped some names of Nazis to compare me to. Wow. That I'm trying to control the information that people get access to, that I'm manipulating people. Um, they went on to, I then had to block them, but they went on and on picking apart everything about me. This is a person I don't even know. And it was really, really upsetting. And it just reminded me of what a fucked up place the internet is sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know this person. It's a true horror uh, and story. Now, I know. And oh. now I have to deal with them just like going at me over nothing that ha- I, I had nothing to do with them, you know? And then their friends started showing up. And I finally to be like, hey, listen, I don't know what the deal is with your friend. I don't know them. This has nothing to do with them. This is actually part of a series I've been working on for more than a month. I would urge you to go look at my other posts leading up to this or the like, I don't know, 20 hours of podcast content related to it. Like this has nothing to do with your friend. Please tell them to go away. Um, but that's that's just how hot, this is such a hot topic right now. It frustrates me because like, honestly, there's like way bigger fish to fry in this world. You know, what do you feel like the future, the future of this trend is? I mean, my hope and I think more and more people are coming around to this is that secondhand will become just a normal part of day to day life because 
The reality is that most of the clothes you can buy brand new right now are incredibly disappointing. They don't fit well. They don't have pockets. They're made of crappy fabrics that make you smelly. They don't last very long. You know, like, I definitely remember at the peak of the, like, Forever 21 era, being at work and someone having to staple my dress closed. You know, like, this is just, like how these clothes were and the early fast fashion clothes were way nicer than the ones they sell now and i just think people are like kind of over it like why not just get something nicer you know and i think i would like to see it become more and more normal my worry is that all of this wild anti-reseller conversation that's happening i mean it's all about like this myth of gentrification of thrift stores which by now we've all we've discussed this now for how many hours kim like thrift stores always wanted middle class and people with more money to come shopping there that was their goal all along right so the thrift stores haven't been gentrified um unless it's because the thrift stores wanted them to be and in that case they were successful and they should pat themselves on the back you know but when you hear that or you hear that reselling is unethical or like steals stuff from poor people or whatever else is out there it makes you feel like maybe you shouldn't buy secondhand clothes because you're too rich or too privileged or people who sell them are too unethical and you don't want to support them. And I read a lot of comments across the internet of people being like, well, I guess I'm not supposed to shop secondhand because I'm middle class, but I don't want to buy stuff from like Amazon or Shein. So what am I supposed to do? You know, it creates this chaos i guess this paradox for people i know and it's just not fair no it's not it's so silly so i mean i can only imagine that it will become a bigger part of just the culture at large because it's been adopted by so many more people and that Mm -hmm, there's a lot mm -hmm. less of a stigma against it um so i feel like it's just it it only has has forward momentum, especially also the the accessibility, all of those things. And hopefully all those naysayers are just uh, in a small corner in a dark room somewhere. (laughs) I mean, it's it's funny to think about, like, this is another one where if you told me a few years ago that people would be fighting, like, really intensely on the internet about the ethics of wearing secondhand stuff – I wouldn't have believed you. I would be like, well, what about all these other big ticket issues exactly. right Exactly. <laughs> you know? And so hopefully people will shift into something else. I mean, we've talked about this before when we talked about trolling and like that sort of culture of bad behavior on the internet. And I think for so many people, being getting on a side uh, is is a way to feel like you're a part of something, to feel less lonely. And Lashing out can make you feel better, uh, except for like how it really doesn't. And it really negatively affects other people. I mean, having now been compared to yeah. Nazis, I felt afraid because it's that dehumanizes awful. me. I mean, you you're know? such a target, too, because you do talk about things that are uh, maybe, a, you know, a little bit divisive. But you wouldn't imagine that they'd be that um, that problematic <laughs> that you're suddenly becoming a Nazi. I know. And I just like I'm the least nazi-esque person around so i think you need i think you need that t-shirt i'm the least nazi-esque person around (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, if that person wanted to show that they literally don't know me at all, that was yeah, the best exactly. way to go about it. Because um, I'm always like, tell me your thoughts to everyone rather than like, you know, controlling the narrative and whatever else. And I think that person has their own stuff they need to deal yeah. with. But yeah, it sucks. Um, it just sucks that things go there, especially when, you know, we have so many other things to worry about right now um, in the post-Trump era. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, apparently all the news stations are basically blowing up and firing people that are, you know, that work all the time. You're like, wow. I know. I mean, it's crazy. We're recording this just a few hours after Tucker Carlson got fired. And that does make me kind of want to like have a shot or something. (laughs) But (laughs) it makes me feel like maybe optimistic. Uh But then I don't know. Um, Do you watch Succession? You know, I, I have not watched it. Um, cause okay. I kind of, I came in a little bit late. Um, oh. I, I hear it's great. I think you should watch it. And I have this article. It's a long read from Vanity Fair about Rupert Murdoch and his family and Fox News. And it's super fascinating. And it's like not dissimilar to Succession. That's why I asked. Um, so I highly recommend that. Okay, well, we will be back next week. Um, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break. Not too long, just a few weeks. Because... Kim is going to Wisconsin, which we know now is the most perfect state in the United States, has a lot to offer. And I'm going to go to Japan again. So we're going to take a little bit of time off and we'll be back after that. Like I said, there's going to be one more episode before then, but then a few weeks off. Um, You know what I wanted to do that we always forget to do? I just wanted to give a little shout out to Dustin for mixing these episodes. Uh, Remember when we made the gain too high and he had to fix that? Constantly. And we're not talking about detergent, but there were a lot of gain problems for a few weeks there. Um, And he also made our music, which I have heard is a highlight for many people. (laughs) So uh, I do get a little jealous because sometimes I feel like the department has better music than Close Horse. And I, I mean, I did tell Dustin that. So I might be getting a new song for Close Horse in the coming months thank you dustin this is me this is kim saying thank you (laughs) thank you dustin sorry about the gain Mm -hmm. sorry about the gain i hope it's fixed we still don't know what it is i'm sure he'll be like no the gain's still off he's like i I just stopped i just had to pick my battles (laughs) (laughs) anyway um that's all for this week and we'll talk to you all next week Bye. bye bye